Amen. Good morning and welcome morning. to the uh, first service after Thanksgiving here. Uh, welcome to service. It's been great so far. Um, thanks to the Smiths and to Pam and Andre uh, for the service so far. And uh, we're actually going to close out, for the most part, our, our fall theme here today. And uh, then kind of transition into a few, um, you know, kind of conclusion uh, sermons as the year uh, finishes up. And uh, so uh, I know there's a lot of people still out of town. Uh, so they'll be coming back in here soon. And then campus will be gone again in a few weeks. Um, and this could probably be changed to like, I thought about changing it to more of like a wintry thing. But fall, I guess, still doesn't work as well with transformation uh, winter. Um, but, uh, but it is kind of cool as we finish up here uh, on the idea of communal transformation. If you're not sure of what that is uh, or what that looks like, please check out the, the podcast. Um, there's all the sermons on the, are on there. But really the idea of how we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ um, communally. And that begins at uh, a conversion. That begins at the, the first, that moment of really being born again, as Nicodemus says in John 3. And Jesus explains which is to be born of water and spirit, which is to be born again, uh, a fresh start, new heart, uh, you know, pledge of a good conscience toward God, all that, which really ends up looking a lot like the whole gospel uh, in, in a few words, really, faith, repentance, grace, baptism, all that, really. Uh, we usually just link all that with our baptism uh, in, in an effort to say, kind of 1 Corinthians 12, you became part of the body when you were, when you were baptized. Um, and so for, for those of us that have not come to that conclusion quite yet, the encouragement will be to, to study the Bible to come to that and to, to really be vulnerable and open and deal with your heart so that you can kind of see, is this something I or we really want to do? In some cases, it's, a, it's sort of you know, a family situation, marriage, and what that would look like for the family, but also for yourself. But for those of us who have made that choice, it really is about how can we stay on fire for the gospel uh, the rest of our lives and to continually being transformed the rest of our lives and to fight that inevitable temptation to just put it on cruise control and to uh, identify as religious the rest of our lives. God forbid we identify just as religious it is, it is that exact world that Jesus comes to blow up in the first century. Uh, so we'll actually be in um, first, uh, we'll actually be in Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 22. Um, and so we're looking at the eight characteristics of the early church, all from Acts 2.42. Uh, there, after 3,000 were uh, baptized there on the first day of, of the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit being poured out in Acts 2. Um, we have eight kind of defining characteristics of the church there. We've looked at all these already, and we're going to close out today with breaking of bread. But we've looked at one another, scripture, generous sharing. You know, the passage there says that the, the, the new believers were devoted uh, to one another, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's especially impressive considering these new believers all don't know each other. So they're all from all over the Mediterranean. You could have you know, anyone from Italy or, or Morocco, as far as Morocco, to your Asia Minor, to Turkey, modern Turkey, to even perhaps Saudi Arabia. People who don't know each other are spending every day breaking bread together, uh, praying together, looking at scriptures together. This is really the calling for us. And the calling for us today is that exact thing. This has a little bit less of an impact today um, because we just we aren't very communal in general uh, with, with you know, how we live our lives. Um, but this is an effort for us to really see that even though the answer is not to go from individualistic to completely communal about everything, but there is a balance. And I think there's a lot of good that can come from, obviously, um, a communal worship 
and, and, and really relying on each other. And it's hard. Believe me, it's difficult. It's much easier. Um, and our, our, our country has done this, by the way. Our country has done this where you say, okay, uh, you know, Billy, Billy Graham, right? Pray the Lord into your heart. Tell evangelists, just do it on your own. Find God your own way. Have it your own way. Do your own thing. That's much easier. That's much easier than having to be vulnerable and open with somebody else um, and to be real with your heart, even the stuff that you may feel, um, you may, uh, there's a shame involved or guilt. But with that, obviously, uh, in, in a very healthy environment, can be very freeing and can bring a lot of peace uh, instead of condemnation. So we're going to close out today with the breaking of bread. Uh, and what does that really mean? You know, they're breaking of bread. Does that mean like a meal you have with people or is that like communion? Uh, we had communion just a little bit ago, and it seems like it's both. The idea of coming together, the, but the, the actual phrase, breaking of bread, does seem to hearken back to the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. So that's what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 24. Now, the title of my lesson is Reminded of the Revolution. Uh, this is, I resisted the temptation to use the Da Vinci painting. It's not very biblical, but here you have a little bit closer to what we're probably dealing with in terms of the Last Supper. Uh, you have the triclinium there, the three-sided table. You have people seated, actually reclining. You hear that, see that, a lot of that in the Bible, reclining. They don't sit in chairs, uh, but they recline. You can see the guys on the end are kind of reclining in. And you lean with one hand and you eat with the other. Um, even today, apparently in some parts of the Middle East, you still don't shake your hand with your left. It's offensive. You eat with your right you lean with your left. That's why everyone wants to be at the right hand of everybody in the Gospels. Um, the right hand is the one that you use. That's the powerful one. And then you have the seat of prominence in the middle. The seat of prominence, this is important. The person who sits there is the most important. And they actually will oversee the Passover meal. And so this is actually Passover. Communion actually com- comes from initial Passover. So we should actually be a little bit scared. And p- probably most of us, we don't ever read this one. When you lead a communion or a service, you know, when you're up here and you're doing communion, there are a few passages that you, you kinda, we kind of always look at. One we, you could look at, but we don't usually like to look at it because it's very scary. And it's this one in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Right, let it, let it sink in. So that's kind of scary. And so even for those of us now who are like, oh my goodness, I just took the, the, you know, the bread and the cup was it unworthy? Did I mess it up? Am I now guilty? I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to have that guilt. What does that mean? Well, we're going to dive in today really what this looks like and what this means. What is the communion? What's the point? What's the goal for us? And we'll start off with a little bit of like, I'll be a little teachy to start just to kind of get us a sense of what we're talking about. And then hopefully we can click and drag into everyday practical, uh, what does this mean for me today at lunch, right, at Guadalajara when I sit there? across from somebody in the church, perhaps. What does this actually mean for that conversation or for the walk as we move throughout uh, our lives? And so Luke 22, verse 14, we'll start there. Uh, I chose the Luke account, uh, not for any particular reason, but the context is nice. Right before this, uh, we don't have time to look at it, but right before this, Judas betrays Jesus. He sets out, it's Thursday. It's actually probably Wednesday night, Spy Wednesday, where Judas heads out and he goes and finds the Pharisees, these teachers of the law, the high priest. And he says, OK, I want to I want to turn him over. I have him. And they arrange this this betrayal of sorts. This is right before this. Perhaps Judas just arrives back at the house where everyone is. 
They might even be thinking, well, what's he doing? Where'd he go? And he's like, oh, I was, just, I was just getting Passover ready. Perhaps whatever deceit or lies involved there with Judas, it's all in play. And Jesus is aware of it. And so here in Luke twenty two fourteen, they begin to celebrate the Passover. Um, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. We just saw what that looks like, okay? So this was important. Even to this day, we know that it's important, an important Jewish holiday to celebrate Passover. I'm going to try to encapsulate this in about 90 seconds. But if I fail, please read the Old Testament. No, I'm just kidding. Please, <laughs> please read Exodus, okay? But Passover is a very important Jewish holiday, one of the most important. But that's why, that's why Jerusalem is packed. And it might be why Jesus waits for this moment, actually. This is the hour. This is the moment. Because everyone's in Jerusalem to go buy their lamb. They all would line up at the temple and pay for their overpriced lamb, which is why Jesus, partially why Jesus overturns the tables there. They pray for their over, pay for their overpriced lamb to have it sacrificed at the temple, partially to God, bring the lamb back, and then eat that lamb for Passover for the meal. And during Passover, you'd sit, and the person in charge would take the bread, they'd break it and pass it, they'd take the cup, you'd drink it, pass it. We actually, a few of us in the church got a chance to have Passover a few years ago, which was pretty cool. Um, and we actually got to do this. Then you take the bitter herbs and eat those to remind you of, of the bitterness of slavery um, before God saved you know, the Jews, the Hebrews from Egypt. And then at some point in the meal, the youngest son, it's kind of tradition, the youngest son is supposed to ask, hey, dad, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What is the point of all this? This, this isn't a normal meal. And the father's going to say, oh, I'm glad you asked, son. <laughs> Because there is exactly a reason we do this. And in, in, in a sense, it's, to, it's, it's a memorial to what God did for the people of Israel. It's a reminder. We were enslaved in Egypt. We were hopeless. We had no, we had no shot. We were enslaved by the, the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time, the Egyptians. But God intervened for an oppressed and slave people. He saved us. He brought us into a land. Not just, he didn't just save us from slavery, but he brought us into a land and gave us peace he gave us strength. He gave us success. He gave us love. He gave us family. He gave us all that we never would have otherwise had. And so it's really an opportunity to give thanks. The word Eucharist is here in the passage, and it really just means to give thanks. Eucharist, and we looked at last week, grace, kadis, you, kadis, right? To give thanks, to, to thank you. That's exactly what this is supposed to be. So here in verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at this point, the apostles are probably going, This is not the way Passover goes. This is not, they've been doing it for this point 30 years or more. They've been at 30 Passovers, and they're probably thinking, What is he doing? This is not the way Passover is supposed to go. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with 
mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. So this is the scene, right? This is the scene, the Thursday night, the Passover before Jesus goes to die. And Jesus begins to change it up a little bit. Just as Passover was a memorial to what God had done a long time ago, Jesus is saying, we're going to institute a new memorial. So when you do this, remember me. This is, in essence, what he's doing. But Jesus is also saying a lot about what Passover and what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. Passover was always, and I mean always, spent with your family. And even here, Jesus is spending time with his family. Mother of, Mary, or mother of Jesus Mary, she's not there. His brothers, his sisters, they're not there. Jesus has chosen to spend Passover with his family. Already he's saying something about the new covenant. Already he's saying something about the kingdom of God, right? And he's trying to say, listen, I'm here with you. And then he tries, he tries to help them understand. But how, diff- how difficult is it when you are really hurting and you really want somebody to understand what you're going through and they just don't get it? They just don't understand. And a part of you is hurt, but a part of you just really wants to be understood. You want that empathy, right? That connection. But the apostles aren't getting it. In fact, it gets, it gets kind of silly at the table. They, they go from who is going to be the greatest? How do they get on this topic of arguing over who is best? Who's the greatest? You can kind of assume how this goes, right? Who's going to betray him? Well, it can't be me because I've done this, 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 and this. Is, are you going to betray him? No, I've done this, 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 and this. Are you going to betray him? No, I've done more than you two. As you can see how that would go. Right? That it becomes, actually, no, I've done the most. I've, I'm the greatest. I've accomplished the most. And the disciples are arguing about who is the best when Jesus simply wants them to understand the heart of his gospel, the heart of why he's come. You know, memorials are great. We have a lot of memorials in this country and a lot of memorials in the world. Uh, you know, we have holidays that are meant to be a memorial and meant, meant, meant to be a reminder of what's important, meant to kind of bring us back. But memorials always Fade with time. You know, I was at Virginia Tech. I arrived there the year after the shooting. 32 people dead. I think it's the second most or still the most uh, people killed in a university in a shooting. They locked both sides of Norris Hall and the killer went, went to town there, killing 32 people. That first year, at, on April 16th, after the Tech shooting, the drill field, which is sort of like the quad for UVA, uh, or the lawn for UVA, the quad for JMU, was packed. Candles. I mean, you couldn't get a spot the year after the shooting. My last year at Tech, it was about 150 people. They still do the memorial every year, but less and less people come every year. Because memorials fade with time. And the memorial of Passover was always meant to be like, let's remember what God did. But inevitably, it just became a ritual. Inevitably, it just became, let's just show up, do the sort of normal, uh, you know, rigmarole. And then let's get out of here and go back to doing what we really want to do. And Jesus knows this. He knows that this is what's... And even they're living it out right then and there. He's trying to help them. The memorial is never going to be more fresh than this scene. And yet they still do not get it. 
And as much as we can laugh, and a few of us even did, and I did when I first read this, how is this even connected? Jesus, it's the, it's the bread in the cup, and then a dispute arose among them of who would be the greatest. It's silly, but it's also us. This is us. And sometimes we think that we are okay because we're not like actively out sinning in an obvious way. That's a big one, right? We think, oh, I'm not doing anything obviously sinful, so I must be good. Um, And sadly, even mainstream Christianity is all about sort of making you feel better. Um, You know, we've talked about this many times, right? But choosing which church you like the most which church fits your needs the most with the people you feel most comfortable with, you know, talking about the things that you want to talk about. It's all just about catering to you. It's a business. And it gives me the heebie-jeebies, to be honest. Um, and, and so we can. We have that, that, that choice. But this is us. This is them. This is us. It's all about. It's self-centered, right? It's different than Judas. Judas was self-centered in a way, in a, in a way of, we don't know why Judas gave Jesus over. But it seems like in some way it was a fear. And insecurity. Either A, Judas wanted to force Jesus' hand uh, to become the military Messiah he expected. Um, or, or B, Judas uh, had been disgruntled in some way or embarrassed or just fed up with not ever having enough money. We know that he loved money, according to the Gospel of John. Either way, he gives into fear and goes and gives up Jesus. And we can look at Judas and go, ah, you know, Judas, we're, good thing we're not like him. But we can do the same thing with the apostles. We can say, how could they ever do that? But that's us. How hard was it today? And this is hard. This is is difficult to actually take the communion and actually focus. To actually think, what am I doing? And to actually consider before you take it whether or not you should take it. We don't do that. We take it probably because we think, oh, what if somebody sees me not take it? I probably should take it because we don't even think about it. We don't even know why. You know, my parents had a strong conviction uh, and I appreciated it, but they didn't want any of their kids to take the communion until they knew what it meant. Not just that, up here, but actually to become disciples. None of us took communion until we became disciples, okay, until we were baptized. But there's, this is supposed to be a very sacred event. It's very important. In all four Gospels, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But I think sometimes we don't realize just how, how, how much danger we're really in. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this. Um, and it says, it is funny how mortals, this is actually a correspondence between demons in his book, Screwtape Letters. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And so sometimes we think, oh, you know what? I'm not actually, I don't know, living it up in sin right now. Um, but in reality, sometimes the best work done by Satan is to just keep Jesus out of our minds. To just go throughout our day without ever really being reminded. And the goal of this, this whole sermon today and the goal of communion is to remember. Is to remember to be reminded of who Jesus was and, who, and who, how he died, but also how he lived. And the goal is to help, the goal for Satan is to make us forget. It's amazing how we can know something, but our lives look like we've forgotten. Our lives look like we've forgotten, you know, and, and we can, how do we do this? And a lot of us, even with this, you know, what does this look like? But a lot of it is just for us, maybe we've said something like, okay, I've got more important things to do, you know, than go to church or than study the Bible or even have a quiet time or even pray or even have somebody over for dinner. We've got more important things to do. Perhaps it is that our child's success has taken precedence in our lives, that that's the most important, that they do well in band practice or do well in that science class 
or that they get into the great university. That's the God of our lives. You know, it was great going to Greece and seeing the pantheon of gods and Zeus and Athena and all these gods they worshipped. All I kept thinking was we have our own pantheon of gods here in America. We have the God of, of independence, the God of academic success that we worship, the God of television that we put in the center of our house and bow down to it at once a day. We have the God of comfortability. We have the God of sexuality, of sexual independence and sexual prowess. And we have the God. You can, we have so many gods. Which God do you praise? And we, we can buy into these lesser, lesser gods and think, oh, I'm not going out there and doing anything crazy sinful. I'm not sleeping around and I'm not getting drunk and I'm not, I don't hate anybody. And, you know, everybody says this, right? For most of we, we all said this in our Bible studies, right? Is when you study the sin study, people go, I don't you know, go out and do anything too bad. I don't, I don't do any of the things that are too awful. Um, but Jesus says this and it's the heart of Jesus's ministry when he goes to those people and he says, there are two roads, one wide and one narrow. And every single one of them goes, well, I'm on some kind of middle road. That's what we say. We love the middle road. Everyone wants to be on the middle road because we don't have to make a choice. And we love relativity. And it does, we don't want to say we're on the high the, the We don't want to say we're on the narrow road because we're too nervous, that we don't want to seem you know, proud or anything. And then the broad road, we say, well, I'm not that bad. You know, and so Satan's goal is by keeping Jesus out of our minds, keeping Jesus. He wants us to buy into uh, comparing ourselves to others. You know, perhaps we do this. Perhaps we compare ourselves to others like the apostles. And during, you know, even communion, we take communion because we know we're supposed to or because everybody else does. Or we come to things because we think, well, if I don't come, somebody's going to get on me about not coming. I better show up to midweek or someone's going to call me. I'm gonna, I don't want to feel guilty. And everything is people based and people focused and we got to do this because my wife wants to, but not because it's biblical, but because my wife, that's how we discipline our kids, because my wife wants to discipline this way. What about the Bible? Who cares what your wife thinks? What about God? Now, amen, you want to be unified. We've got a great unified parenting workshop coming up. Please go to it Saturday, right? But we, we can let people uh, influence us more than the Lord. We can let people, and even the apostles here, they're so consumed with the expectation of the kingdom of God, they don't even get Jesus. You know, I'll mention that in a second, but the last thought perhaps is that we think I'm already saved, so I don't need to be urgent. Or I'm already comfortable, so I don't need to be urgent. You know, the longest conversion in the Bible is three days. They understood urgency better than we do, I think. We say we got time, let's figure it out, uh, let's do this, I'll do it in a month, I'll do it in three months, let me wait till I get my life together, then I'll commit to Jesus. Let me wait till I feel better about myself. Let me wait till my life's good enough so that when people ask me at church, I feel okay to say, yeah, I've got things straight. We don't want to go to church. I can't go to church because I'm, I'm, I'm too hurt right now. Hey, what? It's the best time to go. But we're so consumed with what people think about us. That's, we're, we're, we praise the, the God of people pleasing more than the Lord. And the apostles are doing it right here at dinner as they eat the bread and drink the juice right in front of Jesus. And imagine how he feels as he's trying to help these men. And look at what he says. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I have earnestly desired. I have eagerly desired. Jesus, look at this. This is Jesus. And that's Jesus with us. Jesus is talking. I've earnestly desired to have you be with me. Jesus says, I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you're not willing. I would meet with you today, but you don't want to meet with me at all. 
I will die for you. In fact, he's saying, break this bread. This is my body. And it's being done for you. No response. Take this juice and drink it. It's being poured out just like my blood will be for you. Even at dinner, everything Jesus is doing is selfless. It's others focused. And guess what it is? It's nothing new. It's deny yourself and carry your cross daily. It's what he's been saying every day for three years. And the apostles still don't get it. And if they don't get it, why do we think we've got it? Why do we think we have a, such a firm grasp on it? Let me, let me sit down with lunch and give you a new, a new perspective I had on a, on a spin on a certain scripture. Why do we think we've arrived? Why do we think we have to prove it to each other that we're good or we've performed enough or we're, we, we've done this or that? It's all Jesus wants to do, all he wants to do, all he wants to do is have us just sit down, be silent, and remember. Remember. He doesn't say you have to be perfect. Take this bread when you've achieved a certain amount. Take, drink this juice when you've made it. He doesn't say these things. He says, I just want you to remember me. God, I just want you to remember how I lived, how I died for you. You know, the problem with memorials is that they inevitably lose power over time. You know, and the great thing about this memorial with communion is that it's, communion's not about remembering what Jesus did three, uh, 2,000 years ago. It's about remembering what Jesus is doing now. Communion is not just a memorial for the past, but it's actually a memorial for the present. That we have this incredible gift. You know, the apostles... The apostles, when they heard Jesus preaching three years ago from this night on the Sea of Galilee, right? And they hear Jesus preach, they're thinking instantly revolution. They are. Revolution was on the forefront of every Jew's mind since they were born. When you're under the yoke of oppression by a a dominating power, you think revolution quite a bit. Uh, We have a lot of countries in this world, you know, you know, the, the Catalans in Spain are trying to get independence and things. Countries still want independence. But for the Jews, it was especially oppressive and it was offensive because they were the chosen people of God and they were getting humbled. They were losing. They were losing. And they had every few years a, mess, a Messiah pop up with a new revolution plan. You know, Bar Kokhba and all these guys, and the list goes on and on, all these guys who tried to foment revolution. They tried to foment rebellion. Jesus comes on the scene, and he, and he, and he has this preaching, that this, this goal. And even as Andre shared, Messiah, right? They all think, oh, here's the new leader. What's he going to teach? What's the plan? What's the military strategy? Okay, the Romans, they're stationed over there. It's a forest. They have a garrison there. If we can attack from both sides, maybe we can hold up in the temple, like they actually do in AD 70. We can hold up in the temple and defend and beat them. Then we can be strong again. Then we can win again. Then we can be Israel again. Then we'll be on top again. They hear that, and that's why even I believe Peter still is carrying a sword when Jesus is arrested. He probably didn't buy the sword just before this. Peter's probably owned that sword for a long time. Why would Peter own a sword? Right? Because these guys are revolutionaries. They're expecting a revolution. They're expecting to attack, to win, to, 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 to thwart, to beat. And Jesus says, listen, I, I'm not, I didn't come to bring a revolution to turn the world upside down with power and oppression. I came to do it with denial of self, commitment, and love. You know, Jesus comes into a world that is, it is, it is more segregated than we can imagine. You look at somebody and you deduce them based on, you're, they're reduced to their ethnicity at this time. We see it all the time in the Bible. Samaritans, they're, they're, they're dogs, 
Not a good kind of dog like we think in the West. They're dogs, right? Jews, Greeks. The Greeks were all over the place. My goodness, they were looked down upon. The Greeks had no sexual boundaries. I won't go into detail because it's pretty horrible, but every kind of uh, sexual relationship you can imagine, it was engaged in by the Greeks. Uh, this, was a, a, this was a horrible world. This is a world of death. Every day was death. We know that from Luke 11, that, that Jews died. Pilate killed them. Remember in Luke 11, he kills them. Or sorry, Luke 13. Luke kills, uh, Pilate kills Jews all the time. There's violence. There's death everywhere. Jesus comes and he brings in, I love this, a new kind of revolution. This is what makes Jesus really the Messiah. Is that he comes with no pen. Jesus did not write a word down the entire Bible. He did not write it. He didn't come with a sword to win. Jesus came with humility and love. He had Passover with a bunch of rejects, a, a, a table of all peoples. And even what, even what we'll do is what's so incredible about this is that at the end of Passover, they usually would sing a psalm, sing a psalm, Psalm 117, which we're going to sing today. And that psalm says, salvation to all nations, which was never really true for the Jews. But with Jesus, it is. His love endures forever for all nations. But Jesus came with love and acceptance. And that's a message that the world needs today. And we, we, we forget what we're called to do. We forget the importance of it. All of us, right? We know the call to deny yourself and carry your cross. That is the call of a revolutionary. That's the kind of person who gets crucified. A revolutionary, not a robber usually. And translation, two robbers with Jesus. That's just two revolutionaries. When Jesus enters the temple and said, you've, you've turned my house into a house, a den of robbers, that's, that's, that word, let's die, is revolutionary. That's on the forefront of everyone's thinking. They want change, but they want change so that they can be on top, not so that they can serve. Jesus comes at the head of the table and says, I've come to serve. He serves them. He loves them. And not just serving, but he says, I'm going to die for you. I'm giving myself up for you. This is the message of the gospel. It is love. It is acceptance. It is full-on commitment to the Lord. Not a revolution that involved weapons and governments, but a revolution that involved minds and hearts. You know, Jesus is here eating the Passover with his disciples. He's eagerly desiring to eat with them, to give up his body. You know, the revolution is happening today. We've got to live this out. And every time we take communion and every time we even eat a meal, we should pray beforehand. But the prayer is to remind us of what the real goal in life is. Right. What, this food is great and it's from God, but why are we really here? It's because we need to be reminded of the revolution. Three days ago, on Thanksgiving Day, a youth pastor in Chester, Virginia, shot three people. He killed them on Thanksgiving Day. This is a few days ago. This is a youth pastor. This is an hour away. 60 minutes away. You don't think the world still needs this? And it wasn't some Muslim. It wasn't some ISIS. It was a youth pastor. It was a Christian. You know, we've got to wake up, church. We've got to be, we've got to be willing to remind ourselves. But we've also got to be rem- willing to listen to others remind us. Are we willing to remind ourselves to have little reminders? Little reminders like quiet times are great reminders. That's really the goal of a quiet time, right? You spend all day you know, struggling with your kids and struggling with your spouse and struggling with work and being beaten down by the world. You don't have to have a quiet time because you should. You get to have a quiet time because you want to be reminded of who our Savior is and that he came not asking for performance from you, but he came just to remember who our God is. 
a God who loves all people, a God who embraces the whole world, a God who wants all of us to share dinner with him. I just want to eat dinner with you. We're arguing about who's the best. I just want to spend time with you. God just wants to know us. In fact, what's the great condemnation of those in Matthew 7 who are knocking and left out? Jesus goes, I didn't know you. God wants to know us. But sometimes we don't like the reminders because we're insecure. We're too self-focused. We make it about us and not about Jesus. We do the exact same thing that the apostles did. They made that night about them. And that's, that's a sad thing to make the crucifixion about us, to make it all about me, approach it when I feel like approaching it, do what I want to do. You know, I think Jesus just wanted to be remembered. And I think he just wanted to be, as we can't ever understand what Jesus went through, but that didn't stop him from going through with what he went through. A lot of us, we think no one gets me, so let me pull back. You know, it didn't stop Jesus. The apostles weren't even done yet. They still had to go to the garden and, and sleep when he was trying to pray. And then they get to abandon him when he needs him most. And then he gets to overhear Peter deny him three times to a little girl. It's just over and over again. But this is us. Some of us, we still, I mean, we've, been come, we've been around the church for years and we're still not committed. We still haven't really decided to make Jesus Lord of our lives. We've still decided to kind of quarantine him. And access him when it's most convenient to us. Some of us, are, we're not even making any efforts. We have to be hunted down week after week just to be gotten with. We have to have like eight, eight marine disciples like lower in in our living room to get time with us, right? Like Mission Impossible style. Like we're, we, we cannot be found. We're very, we're very vocal on Facebook, but we won't respond to texts or calls. Like somehow, why, is, why are we resisting the reminders? Why are we so against what Jesus did for us? This is an incredible message. This is incredible salvation, yet we say it's not good enough for us. How can we remember the revolution? We need reminders. You know, Philippians chapter 4, 4 is one of my favorite passages. Do not be anxious about anything. That's the struggle, right? Anxious, anxiety, fear. We get worried. We get worried. Why won't you follow Jesus? Oh, I'm worried about this. Why won't you be more committed? Oh, I'm worried about that. Why won't you? I'm worried. I'm worried. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with Eucharisto, with thanksgiving. That's the word for communion. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Stop trying to understand it. You won't. It transcends all understanding. And Paul was kind of a smart fella. He was trilingual, probably spoke four languages. He was incredibly smart. He was able to share his faith in like six or seven different cultures a month. The guy was a genius, and he goes, I don't really get it. Stop trying to get it. It transcends all understanding, but it'll guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know how peace guards something. The apostles thought that swords and violence and power guarded, guarded stuff, right? That's how we think. Performance. And strength will guard us. But you know what? The peace of Christ, it'll actually protect us. Communion is supposed to bring us peace, not, not condemnation, not guilt. Now, if we're taking it in a flippant way, then we're trampling on the cross of Christ. But if we at least have a humble heart of, I just want to take a time to slow down and remember my Lord here. I want to take time before a meal, 
Let's slow down. Let's pray. And let's remember our Jesus. Let's remember our Father. Let's remember what happened that night. That will actually guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. You know, for us today, church, have we allowed ourselves to forget? Have we allowed ourselves to forget what's most important? And just to encourage you, go after setting a reminder. You know, setting reminders. And I don't know what that looks like. I'm going to leave it up to you. I know if I give out some practical challenge, you might do it. You'll probably do it. But think of a way that you can remind yourself. Because at the end of the day, when you choose not to read your Bible, it is the sin of pride. It is saying, I don't need the Lord. I don't need his word today. I'll be just fine. You know why? Because I've done A, B, C, and D. Just like the apostles. I don't need to pray. I've got it figured out. I'll have it made. It is not that you, have, you read the Bible because you might learn something. It's not because you pray because you know you might get clarity out of it. Those things will happen. But we do so because we love our Lord. We see what he did. And our heart goes out to him. Because his heart first went out to us. And we will rearrange our entire schedule because he rearranged his for us. And not just his earthly schedule, his spiritual one. The guy went to hell for three days. The depths of hell for you. We will do anything for him because we love him so much that we will talk about him with our friends. We'll bring him up. You know, I want to wrap up here with this. You know, we were in Philadelphia for Thanksgiving, you know, and, and it was great. And uh, currently my brother-in-law and his wife are not, not currently disciples, um, never have been. And um, I just want to lift up God. You know, their son was born uh, with an with a eye disease. Um, actually, the doctors thought he would be blind. And immediately, immediately I thought of the man born blind in, in John. The doctors thought he would be blind, and he has to go in every six months, and he, he had this incredibly invasive surgery. Anyway, bottom line is, they go back in for the checkup last week, and he doesn't just have uh, numbers below uh, a risky level. They have, like, normal eye level numbers for, like, normal sight for a, for a two-and-a-half-year-old. And my brother-in-law, who's, you know, I don't know his faith completely or how, he, how it manifests itself, but, you know, he tells me this, and I just was, like, in my head going... I need to say praise God. That's awesome. Then I thought, if I say praise God, is it going to be weird? Then I thought, no, I'm saying it. Praise God. You know, (laughs) it's like a little thing, right? Like a little tiny thing. And he just goes, yeah. And a part of me was like, oh, yeah, amen. He said, yeah. You know, Uh, amen. Praise God for that. But I thought, that's incredible. That's amazing. And there's a heart there of, you know what? It's just our Lord, church. It's God. And let's praise him. We don't have to. We don't have to sing perfect. I'm really glad they made that point today. We don't have to sing perfect. Right? We don't have to be perfect. But. Do we love him back? Is he trying to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing? Is he trying to have dinner with you, but you're not getting it? Let's just set up reminders this week, church. You know, let's not take pride in a religious resume. Let's not take pride in our performance. Let's not try to look at others and try to make, put ourselves high in the pecking order. Let's not be insecure about being open and vulnerable. Because it's not about what others think. Jesus has already died for us. He's already taken your sin on the cross. It's not about them. And even if we struggle with people and they don't get us and they betray us, even if that happens, we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus knows exactly what that's like. And that he did not stop obeying God because of people. That Jesus did not compromise his obedience because of the failure of other people. And the people... Later, 
were able to draw inspiration and faith from this. And those people were us. They are us. Let's be thankful for our Lord. Let's always remember the bread that was broken and the wine that was poured out for us as a reminder to live out the gospel, to follow our Lord into the revolution of denial of self, of sacrifice, and of obedience to the Father no matter what. Let us never forget the true revolution, the one of mind and heart. Church, let's never forget what God's done for us. Let's live this out as we take communion, as we have meals, but also in our week this week as we set reminders for our amazing Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up.